A young perspective on hot button issues around the world. This is the Hub. Welcome to Dubai, the UAE for COP28. That is, of course, short for United Nations Climate Change Conference. Now, this COP28 is attended by 70,000 participants from around the world, 200 delegations, over 140 heads of state, heads of government, the world leaders showed up in Dubai. So the key question now is, how do we act more decisively? And in terms of deliverables for this COP28 in particular, there are a few. Uh, number one, the global stock takes. It's drawing a scoreboard of sort on what countries said they would do versus how they have fared in the reality since the Paris Accord. It reminds countries and nation states and government to accelerate their action and make even more pledges and more importantly, deliver more actions on the ground to keep the 1.5 degree within reach. So the initial conclusion from this uh, global stock take is that um, if we act as we do now, the globe will be warming by about 2.6 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That is way above the 1.5 degree target set out in Paris. Uh, the slightest quantum of solace is that uh, if no actions has taken between Paris and now in the span of the past seven, eight years, uh, the globe would have uh, warmed by even more, uh, which is 3.7 degrees Celsius, in fact. Now the question is, why is 1.5 degree crucial? Now, at the two degree levels, there would be frequent and intense heat waves. Uh, we've seen the droughts, the heavy participation, and an additional 10 centimeter rising sea levels and there will be uh, irreversible changes, such as the destruction of ecosystems everywhere in the world. Now, the second deliverable is the loss and damage fund. Over $420 million has been committed so far to this fund to help vulnerable and less developed countries. You know, we've been hearing about this all the time, to help the vulnerable and the less developed. Why is that the case? I'll give you an example. The Sub-Saharan Africa, they experienced uh, one-third of the world's droughts and is particularly vulnerable to rising temperatures and droughts because these countries depend heavily on agriculture. And as we all know, agriculture needs rain, a lot of it. And it's not just Africa. According to the United Nations, climate financing-wise, we're falling short. Uh, the shortage is somewhere between $200 billion to $400 billion. That is the number of the gap. And according to IMF, the annual cost can be up to 20% of a country's GDP for small island nations exposed to tropical cyclones and rising sea level. And if you look at the IMF report, lower income countries, they're at greater risk of suffering from a changing climate, but they're less capable to defend themselves should disasters hit. CGTN has dedicated a lot of airtime and digital space to telling the stories of the developing countries from the vulnerable communities and from individuals in the global south who didn't contribute to the largest share of the warming climate, but they have been suffering the biggest consequences. Uh, we caught up with some of the representatives from the Global South uh, during COP28. Let's listen to what they had to say. I would like to see that loss and damage fund see some light of operationalization and commitment of funds. We do understand that uh, there is an ambitious goal to realize and address all the climate mitigation, but it's a promising start. And we continue to need significant funds for adaptation for countries that simply will not be met unless there's a different approach to how we address both the capitalization. Los pobres, 
Look, the poor, the less developed countries are the ones suffering the consequences of the crisis that capitalism is generating for us. Small island developing states like the Cook Islands did not create this climate disaster. We shouldn't have to pay the heavy price for, for protecting ourselves from its impacts. Now, these leaders represent Pacific Islands, Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the indigenous communities of the world. They're all asking this question. How far are governments willing to go to fight climate change, uh, which will be hopefully and eventually reflected in this nationally determined contributions, a written pledge by the end of COP28 in Dubai? Now on the sidelines of COP28 in Dubai, we caught up with a number of guests. They shared their thoughts on the fight against climate change. Sonia Guajajala is the first minister of newly created Ministry of Indigenous Affairs in Brazil. Minister Guajajala, so good to see you. First of all, uh, tell us about how satisfied and content you have been with the progress at COP28. Olha. Unfortunately, the progress at COP in this area is still in its early stages, too small given the urgency that the world is already experiencing. So it is necessary to further accelerate the implementation of agreements and also the implementation of the commitments. What would be your key messages to the world out there at this point, based on what you have observed happening at this COP? Um, when it comes to the fight against climate change. Besides thinking about environmental protection, it's also important to think about the protection of human rights, the protection of people, and the restoration of degraded areas. Because what we are experiencing today with extreme events is already causing many deaths. So it's necessary not only to adapt or mitigate, but also to restore already degraded areas, protect human rights and save people. We know that when President Lula um, took office, or won the election rather, he specifically set up this ministry for the indigenous people. Uh, and uh, you once said that this ministry set up was long overdue. Um, can you explain to our audience um, out there who might not be familiar with the episode, uh, why such ministry and what has your ministry been doing in the past few months? President Lula was very courageous in creating the first ministry of its kind. And today, I am here as the Minister for Indigenous Peoples. And for us, this indigenous presence in the federal government, participating here officially in the discussions at the climate conference, is very significant because it gives an opportunity for the voice of the indigenous people to be heard in negotiations directly. So when you compare the inception of COP and its resumption in 2009 to now, there is a significant increase in the indigenous presence from all over the world here. And our ministry today brings the voice of indigenous people from all parts of the world to the conference. And then in what ways do you think the way of life of the indigenous people, of our ancestors, can teach today's people when it comes to living in harmony with the environment, with their surroundings, and at large in the fight against climate change. Então, onde tem a presença indígena? 
So where there is an indigenous presence, there are certainly protected forests, protected biodiversity, clean water, poison-free food, and rich cultures. And all of this is what is needed today to prevent the increase in temperature. We have said that the future is ancestral, and the ancestral future involves learning from indigenous peoples. We are the greatest guardians of the planet, the greatest guardians of Mother Earth. UN data proves that we account for 5% of the world's population and protect 82% of the world's biodiversity. So, if the rights of indigenous people are threatened, biodiversity is also threatened. And if biodiversity is threatened, the whole of humanity is at risk. Therefore, it is important to listen to what indigenous people say in the decision-making processes. When President Lula took office, he said he would revert, reverse the deforestation of the Amazon um, in the next few years. Is it happening? Yes, Brazil plans for an intense fight against deforestation. This year, 2023, deforestation has already been reduced by 49 percent. It's the highest number in the last 15 years. Indigenous people also saw a reduction of 85 percent in deforestation within their territories. And we are committed to implementing the protection plans in indigenous territories, such as the control and combat against deforestation in the Amazon and the plan for the Cerrado. We're also committed to zero deforestation by 2030. So this has already started, and we now have substantial outcomes. What are your expectations when it comes to China-Brazil cooperation? Uh, there has been very robust cooperation in uh, agriculture, in commodities, and um, thanks to President Lula's visit um, and the, the summit between President Lula and President Xi, expectations are that uh, bilateral relations can be enhanced further. Uh, what are your expectations, Minister? Trade agreements are important, but no agreement can supersede human rights or lead to excessive exploitation of the environment. There must always be this commitment to human rights, to the protection of the environment, to understanding the origins of products. And President Lula is very committed to these initiatives and the protection of human rights. China is already uh, producing the largest amount of uh, electric vehicles in the world. In fact, some data says that um, half of the uh, running electric vehicles are in uh, China. Uh, how do you look at China's efforts um, to help the world with the green transition and when it comes to the fight against climate change? This energy transition, the shift to a clean energy matrix, is very important. More than important, it is necessary. Since most of the gas released into the atmosphere come from fossil fuels, it's an urgent change that the world needs to understand. Our life depends on this transformation of the energy matrix, and Brazil is also committed to that. We have already presented a plan for ecological transformation, bringing also this proposal for green energy, for clean energy, with the resources we have, like the sun, wind and water, and increasingly avoiding the exploitation of oil and other energy sources that destroy the environment. Talking about climate justice, uh, many think this is an existing issue, a long-simmering issue. Uh, when you look at um, you know, the contribution to climate change, 
and the impacts, the unevenly distributed impacts on developing countries, indigenous groups versus the industrialized countries. Um, what are your views on climate justice and how do you think it should be addressed? It's true. Today, there is climate injustice, especially against those who protect the most. Indigenous people have shown themselves to be the best protectors of the forest, but they are the ones who suffer the greatest impacts from climate change. So it is necessary to recognize who these true guardians are, who are suffering these impacts, and to achieve climate justice for them. Today, we need to think about adaptation, how to better combat inequality, fight hunger and wars and do justice to these people who care about and protect the environment in their own ways of life. Therefore, a change is needed in the entire production chain and in the food systems. It is also a change to assume part of this responsibility and to look for more sustainable ways of production and consumption. And we, the indigenous people, are working towards this. We came to this negotiation space to send this message and call for reforestation so that people have this ecological, political, global awareness. I've been to Brazil three times. I'm always amazed by the ethnic and racial diversity of your wonderful country. Uh, there are mulatos, mestizos, uh, people of European descent, indigenous people, friends over there. I, I see your outfit, which is amazing. Do you yourself find it difficult to balance, to preserve the ancient way of life while you know, taking note of what's happening, uh, keeping up with uh, your modernity? And um, you know, is that a tall order? It's a compliment. It's a compliment to our clothing. We use what we have available, made by other people, but it's important to also maintain what is ours in clothing, language, song and dance, because that is what our identity is. In China, in schools, um, one of the first things that we learned in history class is that uh, the Native Americans, indigenous people in the Americas, and us Chinese uh, originate from similar ancestors. You know, before the Berlin Bridge connecting Russia and Alaska were, um, you know, melting. Uh, we were one landmass, and then uh, your ancestors probably emigrated from modern-day Mongolia or that region to modern-day America, and the other branch went to Asia. That is giving. Uh, birth to all of us. Um, anything you want to say to your fellow Chinese friends and brothers and sisters? It's about maintaining traditions while continuing to create a lot more. China always brings innovations to the world and they continue to share their creations, their wisdom, while always remembering their origins and maintaining their identity. Just like us in Brazil. Today we're participating in the political world. We're in various spaces, but we maintain this connection with our origins and with Mother Earth. Thank you so much, Minister Guadajala. Thank you. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Deutsche Bahn, the 26th United Nations Climate 
Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Focus, focus on what's relevant in China and the world. Bridge the bridge the gap between what you know and what you want to know. This is the hub. Now, another thing to watch is、uh, non-state actors and corporations, businesses, for example, and their pledges. Cutting methane use is considered by many as the quickest way to mitigate the impacts of climate change, and corporations and big businesses are at the center of this all. Fred, in your opinion, what have been the biggest accomplishments during this year's COP in Dubai? Well, on day one of this year's COP, two amazing things happened that have never happened before at any COP. One, the whole agenda for the conference was approved on day one. Sometimes that doesn't happen till the end of the COP, believe it or not. And also on day one, there was an approval for the structure of a loss and damage fund, and even some hundreds of millions of dollars put into it. Not enough, but、um, those were surprising and good accomplishments. The other big thing that happened. On the side of the COP was、um, very important announcements on methane. You once said that、uh, cutting methane use is the surest route to fight against climate change. Why? Well, because methane is more than 80 times more powerful, pound for pound, than carbon dioxide. So when we cut methane emissions, we can reduce the temperatures and the ferocity of cyclones. That we would otherwise see in the next ten years by getting the methane emissions down. And then, what is the percentage of methane use、uh, when it comes to the the big picture of, you know, emission、uh, producing gases? Right now, about a third of the global warming we're experiencing is from methane. But when we look at it on a go forward basis, methane emissions will warm the planet about the same amount. Over the next ten years, methane emissions from, say, this year, will warm the planet about the same amount over the next ten years as all the carbon dioxide coming from all the burning of fossil fuels on the planet. So this is not a reason to go slow on carbon dioxide. We have to bring those emissions down as fast as we can for our grandchildren and great grandchildren. But if we want to see an immediate impact of cutting emissions, that's where methane is so important. Let's talk about the specifics.、Um, you talk about the potency of、uh, methane's polluting effects.、Uh, how so in terms of, you know, entrapping heat、uh, in the atmosphere? Well,、uh, methane is CH4, and that molecule,、uh, what it does is it is a very good、uh, insulator. It traps heat. Carbon dioxide does the same thing, but ounce per ounce, the methane traps 83 times more heat than the same weight. 80 times. More than 80 times、wow. than the same weight of carbon dioxide. So it's really potent, and it comes from many things that we do in our economy. It comes from oil and gas. It comes from、uh, landfills. It comes from coal mines. And it comes from livestock. Animal agriculture is a big source of methane, also from the burps from the cow. We've been talking about a just transition. How important is it, and are we seeing it? 
Well, we're not seeing uh, fast enough action. Uh, the, the COP process, the world needs to accelerate its move away from fossil fuels and toward clean energy. And in addition, it needs to do that in a way where people can thrive. So we can't hold people down. We need people that don't yet have access to electricity to be able to have electricity. So we need to lower emissions dramatically while at the same time lifting people up. That's the only way to solve global warming that's fair. It needs to be fast and fair. In some African countries we visited, uh, there's no such thing as uh, solar because they don't have enough sunlight and they don't have hydropower because they don't have enough wind. Um, so just echoing what you said, I mean, people there got the right to consume electricity they don't have necessarily those green means. Well, absolutely. And one great contribution that China is making, it's the leading manufacturer in the world of solar power, and it's making solar panels available at lower costs. So this makes it more practical, both in countries that are sunny, and even now in countries that have less sun. How important is a China-US partnership? Uh, I was, was evidenced by the latest uh, Sunnyland statements uh, after the Xi Biden summit in the global fight against climate change. China and the United States are the two biggest economies in the world. They're the two biggest emitters of greenhouse gases, and they are the two most powerful countries in the world. So there's nothing that could be more important in climate change than having our two great powers cooperate with each other. And it was so encouraging, both in Sunnylands and then here at the COP, to see China and the United States announcing new agreements to cooperate. For instance, on methane, both countries agreed that in the future, they will write commitments on how each country uh, will manage its methane pollution into its uh, nationally determined commitments, which is a fancy way of saying mm. our uh, pledges to the world. Mm -hmm. Out of all the agreements, uh, the articles, uh, as was reflected in the Sunnyland statements and uh, uh, their um, you know, uh, expressions, endorsements of support uh, by, by Xi on the Chinese side and John Kerry on the American side, um, what sticks out to you? What specifics stand out to you as important and promising? Well, actually, because of the role of non-CO2 gases in warming our Earth up fast, the agreement to include all of them methane, nitrous oxide, F-gases into future commitments by both countries is tremendously important because when the United States and China do that, it sets a good example that everyone should control not just carbon dioxide, but all the problematic polluting gases that are causing this uh, great problem. Mm -hmm. You have been leading this environmental defense fund for decades, right? And yes. you've been working in the field of uh, protecting the earth for three decades? Yes, more. Tell us about how you see the current state of affairs and also what is the EDF doing to uh, levitate the situation or alleviate the situation rather? Yes, well, the Environmental Defense Fund is now focusing almost exclusively on climate change. And it's focusing on getting the pollution down, but also helping people thrive even though the world is already warming and has more ferocious storms. Here at this COP, we are working not only on speeding the transition to a clean energy economy, but also getting the methane pollution down, 
but also we are working on integrating this conversation with agriculture because there's ways farmers can be part of the solution. And we are also working on forestry issues. Avoiding deforestation is another big thing the planet, the world needs now because when our forests burn, that releases a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So I'm so happy to see in Brazil, they have dramatically slowed the rate of forest destruction just in the last year. And also the Chinese experience, the China experience has been much talked about. From your vantage point, uh, what are some of the best practices that you've seen not only in China but across the world that perhaps can be shared with our audience uh, from around the world? The Environmental Defense Fund has had the privilege to be working in China for almost 30 years. We have partnered with the Ministry of uh, Environment and Ecology during that time. And we have seen tremendous change in China. We have seen the air in the cities become so much cleaner, which is so important not only for climate change, but for people's day-to-day -day health. We have seen China emerge as the leading nation in the world in terms of producing solar energy and uh, batteries and wind turbines and electric vehicles. We need to move transportation to electric buses, electric trucks and electric cars. And China has been a, a great leader in that. So there, uh, I am very gratified that we are making progress on this problem. So many times people feel an absence of hope, um, but there are good things happening. We're faring short, according to the United Nations report. Uh, if you look at the initial conclusion from the global stock take, um, the globe will be warming up to 2.4 degrees, uh, you know, far shorter, uh, which is falling short of the 1.5 degree target. Um, is that trend uh, avoidable uh, going into the next decade? Oh, absolutely. We need to do far better than we're doing now. You're absolutely right, Guan. The world is falling short. We need to accelerate the transition, and we can do it. Just the other day, 50 of the world's uh, leading oil and gas companies, representing 40% of the whole industry, pledged that they're going to reduce their emissions of methane, this is globally, by 80 to 90%. That was a very big deal. And at the same time, it's true that the United States can do more. It's true that China can do more. Every one of us and every country can do more. And we need to not give up on this task. We need to redouble our efforts, even though a lot of good things are happening. Frank, thank you very much. And um, thank you for what you have done. Thank you. Thank you, Juan. Appreciate it. After all, climate change is a global issue. Uh, it takes uh, decisive action, it takes global action, and um, I can't say it better than the board behind me says, unite, act, and deliver. That is a message constantly echoed by the press corps here in Dubai. <laughs>